0: Welcome to Pablo Held investigates. In today's episode I'm talking to legendary composer and bassist Steve Swallow. Getting to talk to master bassist and composer Steve Swallow was a big deal for me. I'm so thankful to the great Mike Gibbs for kindly putting us in touch. When Steve got back to me he told me that he had checked out some of my interviews and that he would be happy to participate. Naturally I'd got super excited went back and listened to all my favorite recordings of him, again. His own recordings, but also his works with John Schofield, Jimmy Jufri, Paul Blay, Thelonious Monk, Carla Blay, Paul Motion, Corea, Pete La Roca, Art Farmer, Stan Getz, or Joao Gilberto. I also found some amazing records along the way that I hadn't heard before, and also When I told John Schofield that I would interview Steve Swallow, he told me to check out Steve's incredible bass feature on I Want You from Gary Burton's in-concert record. Steve was really generous with his time as our conversation took more than two hours. We talked about so many things and I'm still processing the inspiration I got from our talk. But I think it struck me the most to see how much Steve is still working on improving his connection to the instrument, how willing he is to keep learning and make progress. Considering how much he has already done for this music, this sets a high bar for all of us to never become too comfortable with the status quo. I'm so happy that you agreed to do this with me, I've been a, a long time fan, I think I grew up listening to your sound through my parents, who are big uh, Schofield fans, so these <laughs> records you know, we used to listen to, I can see your house from here, um, uh, when we went on vacation and all these other records, you know, so <laughs> I know your sound very very well, I think, <laughs> maybe we can start with what you're working on at the moment.
1: Well, curiously, I, I'm, I'm working on music with, with Schofield. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy that my association with, with him has continued since the, the mid-1970s. The very lengthy musical associations I've had have, have been, I think, the most gratifying. It, 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 it does matter, I think. That you find some some people who are important to you in terms of your your own musical development, and and then you kind of make a, an implicit agreement, a, a tacit agreement to to proceed together on something, uh, something undefined, something that defines itself as it as it goes along, and and this has been the process with with John. We've been Learning together. Um, in in effect, every gig is, is a should be a, a, a learning experience. We've been playing uh, almost always in trio with Bill Stewart for the last ten or twenty years. I don't know a yeah. time plus, uh, and it's it's been a kind of evolving repertoire, and the repertoire is a reflection of how our how, how our playing has evolved. All, almost all the repertoire is written by John or, or chosen by John. He chooses a few standards and then writes tunes. But lately he's begun again after a long period of abstinence to uh, to play some of my songs as, as well. When I say that, I'm it, that that's what I'm working on, I, I'm... I'm referring, I guess, to my to my bass player self. I'm, I'm down in the basement practicing, and I am I'm, I'm not just practicing the repertoire that I'm that I've begun to play again with with John. I'm still very much involved in in learning the the, the mechanics of the of the bass. Um,
0: How do you do that?
1: In in a very Dogged, methodical way. I just press the string, pluck it, and see what happens. I, I mean, I I know that's a sort of glib response, but but seeing what happens when you when you pluck a string is is uh, is a life's work. I mean, it's it's uh, and any player knows. You you know that that. They're playing the piano. is it's, it's not like playing the typewriter or playing the computer keyboard. And the the business of extracting tone from a an object from an inanimate object is a kind of ma- magical process and a, and a very a very convoluted process. too. it, it it, it goes into all kinds of dark corners as you begin to explore what's what's possible <laughs> you know and how to get the, the tone out of an instrument the metaphor that's often used and the, the, often by people who are not musicians is is getting the instrument to sing and I, I, I think that's the, that's an accurate description of what what the goal is um, and obviously when you're playing something like a a bass guitar, or for that matter, a, a piano. Uh, singing is really a metaphor because there's no breath directly involved in in producing the tone. Uh, in in my case, I press the string and and pluck it with a with a plastic object, and then kind of manipulate the string with my left hand to. To make it appear more vocal, but the process is is, is at a, at a basic level that's strictly mechanical and and involves very little of what's involved in, in 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 producing song on the the voice, although of course the the vocal cords vibrate to produce tones, or so there there are clear analogies uh, yeah throughout the process, but but in the end, it's 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 a, a very mysterious process and, and a, a life's work. I mean, I, again, I'll refer to the piano be, just because I'm talking talking to you. Uh, when I hear Michelangelo, the Italian classical yeah. pianist play, I, I, it really sounds to me as if he's as if he's instigating sound mm-hmm. using breath. Um, and I, I get the same sense from Bill Evans' production of, of, of sound. The, the, he's he's really done it. The, the, these people have really done it. They've done that magical thing that, that they've uh, crossed some invisible line and made a, a an inanimate object sing. It's transcending
0: um, the instrument in a way, right?
1: It is, um, and and of course that's a a necessary goal. Uh, if you're lucky, in particular when you're actually in performance, you you, you do transcend the instrument. It it, it disappears in your hands. You know, this doesn't happen to me so often when I'm practicing because the state I'm in mean when I'm practicing is a state of deliberation. i I'm, I'm I'm trying consciously and deliberately and methodically to work toward certain goals. The production of, of, of tone is, is of course just just one aspect of, of what practicing involves for me too and to, and to return to to my work on on John Schofield's music on, what I'm doing is I think what a lot of a lot of musicians do when they practice i'm, I'm confronting the music that I'll be playing with him because I want to play it well. Yeah. And responding to the demands that that music places on me one by one i'll 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 play through the chord structure of of one of his songs and encounter an unusual motion. And there are a lot of unusual motions in his. Songs and and there there goes a half hour, you know. Yeah. How do you get from a G7 altered not to a C minor but but to an E major seventh, you know? What are what are the common tones? What are the logical passing tones? All of that stuff. And I, I'm I'm holding the instrument and I'm trying to realize. The implications of that chord motion on the instrument, but it's my head that's hurting. It's my head that's doing the work. Practicing for me is a bit random and diffuse. I must say in that way too, and I wish it weren't. I wish I were more disciplined. But I'm pretty. I'm, I'm self-taught as a as a bassist, except that I asked a lot of questions of my elders. Mm. Of course, my elders were acoustic bass players, not. Electric bass player. So the advice they gave me is: Didn't you
0: play? So, a,
1: yeah. Didn't you yeah. play a
0: piano before the bass?
1: I did. I did. I, and and I still play the piano. And I think my sense of the geometry of the music, the the the, <laughs> the way notes are kind of ordered from the low ones at the left to the high ones at the right, are a reflection of my involvement in the. In the piano, and I I I'm, I feel fortunate to have that because of course the fretboard of the guitar or the bass guitar is really illogical. There are four or five different ways to play any given pitch or many pitches.
0: Yeah, I don't understand it at all. I, I've tried, but you ah. know I know the basic concept, but still, it because coming from this instrument here, it's. It's really hard for me to understand.
1: It's, it's, it, it kind of boggles me, too. And, I, and I'm <laughs> amazed at, at, at for instance, John Schofield's uh, ability to, to use the exceedingly complex geometry of the fretboard to his, I refer to the piano, I refer to a kind of logical scheme where the low notes are on the left and the high notes are on the right and they, yeah. Proceed in, in perfect logic from the lowest to the highest. When I conceptualize music, when I think about it, it's 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 often the keyboard that that serves as a reference for me, and and of course, especially when I compose, that's the case. I I really imagine a G seven altered as a as a as an event on the keyboard. I can kind of close my eyes, see the piano keyboard, and see the the notes of the G7 all to illuminated on it. You yeah. Know.
0: You just mentioned Schofield and, and his ability to to use the, the fretboard to his advantage. Did you talk to him about that?
1: We've ta- we've talked about it and often there's not all that much else to do on the bus. So <laughs> yeah we've go- we've gone into this a great deal. But but I still feel that I'm that I'm way behind him. He has, the, he has the advantage of not having played piano and I have the, the advantage of having played yeah. piano. Yeah. And I think our styles, when we play, differ in a way that can be traced to that. And I think also that he kind of groped his way when he was a kid, when he was first approaching playing the guitar. He kind of groped his way to an understanding of the keyboard without anybody feeding him a very clear methodology he had i know he had instructors as a as a kid but i think he had the the kind of instructors that that we often get the guy who works at the local music store and and teaches teaches guitar on the on the weekends and i for the most part i think john discovered the guitar on his own and I remember when we were doing one of the early albums that I produced for him. One of the the, the first Vision album on, on on which he did a lot of... Uh, Steve Jordan played the drums.
0: Is uh, it still
1: warm? No, I'm, I'll never recall the title of this thing. Right. It was, Sanborn was on, Ray Anderson played on a couple of tracks. It was a... Wow. Uh, not one of the widely known ones, but a very interesting one anyway. And Sko wrote this album. It was, I think, one of his in, his initial encounter with using machines to write music. And in particular, he got his hand on a on a drum machine, and this would have been in the in the mid '80s, the mid or early '80s, when drum machines were somewhat primitive. The drum was the standard at that time. He got hold of a drum machine and was determined to write his own rhythm tracks. And he did, in fact, write his own rhythm tracks. And the album was recorded to the drum machine. And, and Steve Jordan replaced the drum parts uh, with live drums so, somewhat late in the process of making this album. But anyway, the point I'm, I'm, I'm headed toward is that Schofield either didn't read the drum machine manual or mis- misread it or chose to ignore certain paragraphs and devised a way of using the drum machine that was utterly wrong. And he had everything going through aux channels and out of the wrong end, uh, inputs going into outputs and outputs coming out of inputs in. And, yeah. and when I... At, at one point, I tried to get in there to work directly with him to change certain beats, and I was just absolutely baffled and, and repelled by the bizarre system of rooting he devised to make the drum machine speak, but, but in the end, it worked. And it, it struck me at the time that I was the, that I was confronting the mind of somebody who could understand the fretboard in a way that I that I never could, and and would probably have no use for the for the the kind of clear logic built into the piano keyboard as as I did. We're different animals, and and I think the lesson to be derived from that knowledge is you you have to kind of Reflect on what sort of animal you are, and then do something that, that, that makes use of your particular skills. And that will not only allow you to, to be good at something, to do something that, that, that makes sense, something you're, you're equipped to do well, um, it'll give you pleasure down the road rather than frustration.
0: And it also and it, helps you to be more yourself in a way, right? Yeah, right. It's a, it's
1: a, in in effect, you're, you know. I'm talking about how how do you realize yourself? How do you realize your potential? I, I feel singularly, uh, and it is a singular thing. Singularly fortunate to be a bass player. It's it's just perfect. I was I was bred to be a bass player. I'm I'm. I'm convinced, and and this means in in effect that I'm spending my entire lifetime dealing with a relatively simple set of parameters, as compared to guitar players or saxophone players, for that matter.
0: Hop players.
1: Uh, or, Or piano players. I'll point an accusatory finger. The bass is, and at, at least at some level, a relatively simple mechanism, and the role of the bass player in the music is is relatively simple. But of course, as my bass hero Red Mitchell said, "Simple isn't easy," and it's a it's a life's work to 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 shine as much light as possible on the on the the simple basis uh, on 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 which bass playing stands and, and the base is the simple basis on which much more complex events can stand in, in, in music as well. So it's a sort of it all makes sense in some funny
0: way. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering in 1970 you made a groundbreaking decision for for your life and also our, our lives um to use the electric bass and that, that meant you played an instrument that didn't really have a whole lot of tradition in our music and jazz and improvised music i don't know how to put it but um, i'm wondering how you your view on it is that decision changed obviously your sound and your your instrument uh, instrument of choice but i'm wondering how that actually changed your material the material that you
1: play. That's an interesting way to, uh, an interesting perspective on a, on a question I'm often asked, which is why in God's name you would change to electric bass from, a, from acoustic bass. The effect that the change from one instrument to the other had on my playing is is still an evolving issue. And it's, so it's one of... Many, many aspects of doing music that is out of your control. That that is, um, it's in in effect, it's something that happens to you. In this case, uh, if I'm getting your question correctly, the the bass guitar is telling me what it wants to do, how it wants to to sound, just as the acoustic bass told me what it wanted to do and and how it wanted to sound. And of course the instrument is very clear about its boundaries, so um, it'll say, I don't do that and I do this. So I was waiting for answers to the question you asked as I made the switch to electric bass and I'm still receiving answers. about just what what it is the electric bass will, will do. There are some obvious answers, one of which is that depending on how you set the amplifier and what kind of strings you use and all of that kind of stuff, you can get an extraordinarily clear sound on the electric bass. This clarity comes at the expense of complexity in the sound so it's not necessarily a good thing in fact from my perspective it's not a good thing but if you choose to you can you can be very clear and express complex ideas more readily I think on the on the electric instrument than on the the acoustic one you can make a clear melody in the middle register of the instrument using the, the more complex and colorful chord tones and, and have them register clearly on the on the listener. Again, depending on how you set the amplifier and all of that stuff. But of course, what this makes you do, what it makes me do, is to confront whether that's desirable or not. And in fact, I've, I've, it's not desirable when you're serving as an accompanist. One of the the beauties of the role of the acoustic bass in in jazz music is in the kind of ambiguity that's that's built into the sound of the instrument. There's a there's a wonderful coloring to the sound of pizzicato double bass that that makes you wonder if a note is really the pitch you think it is. Is that really a G or there is, and which octave is that really in because the overtones are so rich and there are times when we when the, the the primary overtone, the octave seems more pronounced than the fundamental tone. So is that a high G or a low G? And yeah. in fact is that a G at all? And is it there's this wonderful mystery to the to the acoustic bass that can can be a distinct advantage in accompanying a soloist. It, it means, in, in effect, that the soloist can assume whatever he likes about what's going on beneath him. The soloist can kind of idealize what he's hearing below what he's playing. And that's kind of freeing to the soloist. It allows the soloist to... to uh, to assume the best in every situation and to assume kind of an idealized event going on beneath him and to play his ideal solo above it. If you're not careful with the electric bass, what you play is entirely too specific and insistent. And when you're serving as an accompanist, which you are almost all the time, that specificity and insistence can really... Intrude on the soloist's thought processes, and and of course, the, what the soloist is thinking is far more important than what the, the the bass is doing. The bass is there to facilitate the best possible solo to make the soloist sound as good as possible. The bass is very much a toss up. I, I I spend hours down in the basement fiddling with the knobs of my amplifier. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about the electric bass, I'm of necessity talking about the amplifier as, as well. That's very much a part of the instrument. And that was a lesson that was very difficult for me to, to learn. I always just thought of the amplifier as the box behind me that made me loud. Whereas in fact, it's as much a part of the instrument and the, the, the process of generating a sound as the the thing in my hands is, I I I finally learned that I think from Jimi Hendrix from oh, nice. listening to Jimi Hendrix. It's just in inescapable that he's playing the amplifier, and I said, ah, mm-hmm. a little light bulb went off at some at some point. At any rate, I'd spend days down in the basement changing the, the settings on my amp by a uh, 64th of an inch higher and lower and all of that. And then when I go out in the real world, I, uh, what I've done is absolutely silly and useless, and I end up making broad and, and sweeping changes in the settings of my amplifier to, to to play with other guys and to play in other acoustics and... In fact, to get way back to the very first question you asked, the work that I'm doing now is essentially bass player work, not composer work. The practicing that i'm that I'm doing may very well be almost entirely useless. I, I may just be uh, whacking off down there. I may just be having fun. And if that's the case, so so be it. at the very least, my my fingers are are. Getting more and more and more familiar with the um, with the, the fretboard and and with the feel of the strings as I as I pluck them. Um, so whether I'm kidding myself about all the amp setting changes I'm making and and even all the the ways in which I'm learning to get from G7 altered to E7, are, um, are so much. Flies out the window when you're actually in a performance situation and that, uh, that it's a very good question what why I'd, why to bother practicing at all? Mm-hmm. And we could talk about that for yeah, go ahead a time. For instance, Paul Blaine never practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, and as his career and his life progressed, he he became, ever more emphatic about about not practicing it, it, it became not only do i never sit down and play the brahms exercises or 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 churney or any of the the standard piano technique exercises i never think about the chords of all the things you are and I, I never think about what i'm going to play tonight I never think about what I'm going to play in the next instant, et cetera, et cetera. You can kind of extrapolate from I don't practice to the point where you're divesting yourself as completely as you can of any forms of preparation for, for playing. I, don't, I think Paul Blake took that as far as anybody I know. And and it's a it's quite an achievement. Uh, his music is is remarkable. Uh, that being said, I've, I've I've taken the opposite approach. On uh, at least at this point in my career, I'm I'm determined to prepare myself as much as I can for for the act of playing music in in public when it when it comes.
0: But still, when you're then playing, you're very much in the moment. I feel. One and, would hope, yeah, one would, hope. and these these things about you know, I don't know what I'm gonna play in the next moment it will present itself is very yes. much apparent for me as a listener when I listen to you.
1: Yes, yes, that's entirely true. Um, on a on a good night, of course, <laughs> on a a bad night, you're thinking desperately, oh, why did I play that? No, why didn't I play the other one? Is my
0: flaw. On a bad night, you're you're almost, I mean, not you, but I, I think we all are, you know, on a good night, we're maybe more concerned with what's ahead, like mm-hmm. curious about the next thing that will present itself. And on a, on a bad night, we're actually more in reverse, like, oh, why did I play that? And, oh, shit, I, this yeah. doesn't make sense at all. It's yeah, funny. I
1: think that's exactly true. And I, I, you know, of course, we are—we are we're all having good nights and and bad nights, and you never know. I—I I, I find it, of course, a, a a source of endless frustration that I often play my best in the worst of circumstances, and when sometimes when situation is ideal, the acoustics are perfect, the piano is magnificent, they've given me just the right bass speaker. We've had a day off and, 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 and awakened in the morning in the town we're going to actually play the concert in you know everything's perfect and the concert is not good the concert is yeah, but
0: why do you think that is? Uh,
1: I have no idea and, and I, I, I don't think I'll ever figure that one out. Have you figured that one out?
0: I, I wouldn't dare to, to tell yeah. you I figured it out but right now when you talk... Talk to me about the, the two opposites. It, it seemed to me that maybe we have to have a, some sort of resistance or some sort of little fight that we have to have in order to be on the edge of things. And when you're on the edge, you're maybe more creative. I don't know.
1: I think, I think yes. I, I, I think that's cert- certainly a part of it.
0: But it is very mysterious and always... There's so many uh, circumstances that come together on a performance that yes. they it can't be recreated and then saying okay that's again this is again a good night uh, or this is again a bad night.
1: Yeah, this is true. I mean, I've I've also found that we as performers experience the depths of of agonizing over what we see as a really horrible night where we just couldn't find the right notes, couldn't play anything right. And on the other hand, there's glorious nights when the music just seems to play itself and then you can't make a mistake, you can't play a bad note. I've I've had people during one of those horrible nights come up to me and tell me how deeply meaningful what we just played was. (laughs) To them, and it would be a terrible insult to say to that to that person. Are you kidding? I played shit. There was nothing in there worth worth of, worth your having listened to at all.
0: I heard somebody say that after we've played something, it's not our responsibility anymore. It, it's up to the listener then to de- decide how meaningful it is for them. You know, once once it's played, it's it's gone in a way.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I absolutely feel that's true. Uh, you, it's, a, it's a process you have to learn to kind of let it go, to, to let what you've played. Go. And you can, you can kind of see that, that process, I can see that process more clearly as a, as a songwriter. I've had some problems periodically hearing my music played by other people in ways that I didn't like. And I've had to confront that that the song is no longer mine. And just as when you play something, it's flown out there into the air. The same is true once you've disseminated a lead sheet to a song you've written. It's it's no longer yours. It's assuming its own life. And the, it's very, very much like having children and all. I oh, think yeah, they, right? they go away and do the wrong thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to get back to the to that question we had regarding the actual material you play. I have so many all-time favorite records where you're on that yeah. you, where you play the acoustic bass, and then when you play the electric bass. So I love I love all of Steve Swallow, um, but especially in the last days, I've had trouble connecting your acoustic persona to the electric persona in terms of the actual material, what you play. I love both, but clearly cool. you, you're the same person. But that, that decision to use another instrument, I think also changed, in a way, your material that you played. And I don't know how aware you of, are you of, of that, when you now go back listening to your old recordings, like how do you see it? How do you see the, that that uh, evolve, evolution maybe?
1: Well, I don't listen to my old recordings, so I did. You you probably have a clearer sense of of the the changes that that happened when I switched instruments than than I do. I'm I'm really Reluctant to, to, I'm reluctant to listen to playbacks. When I when I record, I I avoid going into the booth to listen back to 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 what I've played. Uh, I dislike doing that, and I I've, I've I've come to actively do whatever I have to do. Leave the room, uh, go go sit in the toilet, uh, <laughs> thing to, to avoid hearing what I've just heard. Um, you know, for, for the sort of obvious reasons, it makes me self-conscious. Um, but I, I, I would extrapolate that and say that I don't go to, I, I don't listen to what I played 20 or 30 years ago for essentially the same reason. I don't want to be made self, self-conscious about what I've been doing. But I, I want to confront the, the, the question you've asked because I think it's a good one. And again, I'd return to the idea that this is all something that kind of that's happened to me, not something that I that I've done. I I do know that my intentions when I switched to the electric base were to change nothing. I still idolized Percy Heath. and, and Doug Watkins was still my favorite guy. I loved Wilbur Ware. Yeah. Um, I knew nothing about James Jameson and and uh Duck Dunn and the, the elected bassists who were who were strongest at, at that time. And I had no desire whatsoever to change my my music. I, I still wanted to, to wake up the next day and play with Roy Haynes. Yeah. Uh, I I I still wanted to pursue the the same path of knowledge that i that I'd been on the day before I touched an electric base. It, again, it was just something that happened to me. I touched the electric base and fell in love with it. And my among my many very complicated responses to that circumstance was, oh, shit, now I've done it. You know, how is this going to work out? Because I really, if I knew anything at all, I knew that I didn't want to all of a sudden play rhythm and blues or, or, or play rock and roll. I simply wanted to play the electric bass. I just loved the way it responded, the way it felt in my hands, the uh, I, I felt it was something I was meant to do and that, it, that I had no legitimate right to refuse what was happening to me. I just had to follow it. Just as when you first discover that you're going to be a musician. I, in my case, it was when I was 13 or 14 years old. What you're required to do is to just face up to it, to just say, oh, yes, Okay. This really has happened to me. I'm not going to be a doctor or a lawyer. I'm not going to be a fireman. I'm not going to be a baseball player. I'm going to be a musician. And then you kind of take it from there. You start to, to work in a, in a more serious and directed way on being a, a musician. Well, this happened to me when I was 30 years old. I was already well committed to being a Musician, and all of a sudden I'm an electric bass player, and I'm undeniably electric bass player, an electric bass player. But I had no desire to change what I was doing. I wanted to wake up the next morning and play. I was working in Gary Burton's band. I wanted to wake up the next morning and play the same repertoire with the same guys. I wanted to continue to learn felonious monk tunes in my spare time. I wanted to. To continue to work on what it was about Lester Young's phrasing that it, that was so that spoke to me so clearly that I so much wanted to 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 bring to my own to my own playing. Nothing had changed. I all of a sudden I didn't want to 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 wear silk pants and and uh, and learn to do deep knee bends while playing the bass. You know, I just. Um, but, in point of fact, I mean, your question is is really to the point. in point of fact, I had to find a way to use this instrument that that responded differently, sounded differently in the in the 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 context that i that I knew and loved and insisted on retaining. And that's been an ongoing effort on on my part. The electric the electric bass is, is is not the acoustic bass. It doesn't respond and sound like the acoustic bass. This this may be sort of a, a a cop out, but the search to to establish a role for the electric bass in jazz music has of necessity been a cooperative effort. I mean, I can I I could only work on the this challenge in context, that is, to say, I could only work on it playing on the bandstand with other jazz players, with other jazz players I admired. And of necessity, I think they had to, you know, change aspects of their playing in response to the electric bass. So so, uh, among the many things that happened to me in the course of the process of integrating the electric bass in jazz... I had to kind of search out players who were willing to to give it a go, and and uh, that that's been a really interesting process. Some of the players I had a strong bond with playing the acoustic bass were, were just simply unable to make the transition to playing with electric basses. They just weren't comfortable and uh, weren't satisfied with the electric bass playing beneath them, and I understood and respected that. in point of fact, I was finding the sound of the electric face really problematic myself, so I could really sympathize with other <laughs> other guys doing the same. And on the other hand, there were some really surprising people who had no no trouble adjusting to the electric face, and that Roy gave Haynes. me like Roy Haynes, exactly. In fact, Roy Haynes was pivotal in this whole process for me. At one point, not long after I'd begun playing the electric bass, or maybe a half year or so after I'd begun playing it, I I, I went to Roy one night between sets and said, "Look, Roy, I, you've been really gracious about what I've been doing, but I I want you to know I've been thinking about this, and I and I want you to know that if if this is wrong for you, if if you're not happy with playing with me, playing the electric bass. Please tell me, and I won't do it. I won't do it in, meaning I won't do it in this group. I'll just take it home and practice it on my own. And without missing a beat, and of course, Roy never missed a beat. um, He just fired back to me, no problem. There, There was absolutely no hesitation on his part. It just made it clear to me that what was valuable to them was what I was doing. And the instrument was not the point. I I was going to say the instrument was irrelevant, but that may be a little that may be a little wishful on my part. But the instrument was not, not sufficiently important to cause them not to want to play with me. Like Haynes was was just wonderful. I felt that that my ticket had been punched, that I that That's I'd good. been validated, you know, and I and I, over the course of the years, especially in the the early years of making the transition, I would get tested every now and then. I would uh, people would call and and offer me a gig, and I'd say, "Great, I'll uh, I'll I'll do it." But I I should tell you that I only play electric bass now, and then they'd say, "Oh, gee, well, well okay, sorry." Uh, uh, and others would say, "Well, it doesn't matter," you know. So there was a kind of process of selecting the players who were who were comfortable with the electric bass and then working in partnership with them to find the, the voice for the bass that worked within the, the music. And, of course, the music is not a static thing. I mean, I've been playing the electric bass since 1970, so the, the music and the people I've been playing with have evolved tremendously beyond our wildest imagination you can begin to imagine what music is going to sound like 10 years from now you yeah. know 20 30 years from now so the the electric bass and and my playing of the electric bass has kind of evolved as the music has evolved over the last nearly half a century that I've been playing the the electric bass. It's funny that I still see it very much as a work in progress. I imagine that acoustic bass players don't quite see it the same the same way they can kind of take their instrument for granted. And they can kind of assume that the players around them will take it for granted as well. Whereas I'm always, I guess, wondering a little bit, is this working? Am I working? Um, are they happy up there above me playing, playing in the treble clef? But again, I, I, I can easily see that as a as, as something good that's happened to me over the years. It's, it's kept me on my toes. I, I I haven't been able to be the least bit complacent. I've, I've really had to to try to get better. Mm-hmm. I've, 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 because i because. The, the the process of getting better for me is the process of finding a, a way in which the electric bass uh works in the jazz context. And in order to, to have a, a an answer to that question that, that's meaningful, that's useful, I really have to confront the history of the music. You know, I have to I have to really think seriously about about the role of the bass from Pops Foster through Jimmy Blanton through Oscar Pettifer and Doug Watkinson and up through my contemporaries you know and then I have to confront what music has been doing for the last 30 or 40 years as it's evolved since I played the electric bass. I know jazz musicians who play very well who, who've kind of abandoned that, the necessity to know more about the, the music. they they just kind of burrowed deeper and deeper into their very specific little wormhole within the music. And that works too. I'm, I, don't, I don't mean that as a, as a criticism, but I, I feel that what I've had to, to do is to be progressively more aware of the music in, in order to place the electric bass within it. And I, luckily I lo- I love that work. I'm lucky I think too in in that I I, I was kind of a hinge at the time in, in nineteen sixty when I when I became a professional bass player, moved to New York City and and I was I was playing with, with guys who were developing the music in the nineteen twenties. Guys who played with Louis Armstrong and Vic Spiderbeck and was playing with guys who were, who, who played with Leska Young and Basie spanners, and then I was playing with guys who played with Bird, and I was playing with guys who worked with Sonny Rollins a lot, and then I was playing with my contemporaries, and then 20 years later I was playing with Schofield, and, and there are several generations of the the music that have impacted me in a substantial way. I mean, I'm I'm still trying to learn to 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 phrase like Vic Dickinson, the trombone player, and, and who played a lot with Lester Young and and, and who had a re- remarkable ability to, to play hand in glove with Lester Young. And of course, I'm looking for Lester Young's secrets to, to this day. And, and, and I see a, a kind of brotherly relationship between... Lester Young and Charlie Christian, and that gets closer to what I do. That's that, At that point, we're talking about picking a string. Yeah. And I, I was directed to Charlie Christian by Jim Hall. And and I think Jim Hall has been a an overreaching influence on me, especially in terms of, of manipulating the instrument. I can still sort of, you know, shut my eyes and see his right hand or his left hand, and, and how his hands approached the strings, how his hands coaxed sound out of out of the instrument he was playing up. Um,
0: Steve, Steve yeah. you're, you're crossing all my notes. It's amazing. <laughs> That's good. I, I so wanted to talk to you about Jim Hall, because whenever I hear you, I have to think of him. Not that you're trying to imitate or anything, but I feel his presence on your sound, or how you how you phrase, sometimes, and then uh, then when I hear you together in Art Farmer's quartet, it just makes sense, you know.
1: It does it to me too, and I and I think you're right, and I think I can I can say without being embarrassed or, or ashamed that I do try to, to play like Jim. I, I do consciously emulate things about his playing. The the wonderful thing about that process the process of emulation and shameless imitation is that inevitably you will get it wrong yeah 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 uh, failure and of
0: is course, bound to it's, happen
1: it's bound yeah you can't you can't be exact you, you just won't be and that's a good thing that's a saving grace Luckily, your 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 own personness your own personality your own the way you do it intrudes on the uh, the effort to be a perfect Jim all that it just can't be done. And you know Jim was 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 unashamed about his admiration for Charlie Christian. There endless interviews with Jim in which he mentions that and, and he and he talked to me a lot about about Charlie Christian. And I hear very clearly the way Jim phrases, the way Jim touches the instrument and all that. He has a tremendous dead to Charlie Christian and, and to Lester Young. There's a, a line there that I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge. Jim was also one of those, you know, I, I mentioned earlier Michelangelo and Bill Evans. Jim Jim is like that, I think. He's a, a sort of uh, capable of alchemy. He's capable somehow of, of making the process of striking a, a string, Appear to be inhabited by breath. Some breathing is central to Jim Hall's production of tone, just as I think it's central to, to Bill Evans and Michelangelo and, uh, and many others. We could we could make a long list, yep. but that's what I you know I would like to sound like Pavarotti, maybe more to the point, Marvin Gaye or Frank Sinatra. These guys have increasingly become the, the the focus of my my attempts to imitate to get to get that legato vocal spirit into the line one plays. And again, I think this is something I I, I share with with Jim Hall, and I and I think he directed me toward listening to to vocalists as well. In particular, Frank, Frank Sinatra. Jim was a big Frank Sinatra fan. And not coincidentally, and and not to beat a dead horse, like they say, uh, when Lester Young died at the Al- in the Alvin Hotel, he he was living in a virtually bare hotel room with nothing but a small record player and a lot of Frank Sinatra records. Uh, there you go. I, again, the the kind of the vocal thing. Another thing I love about Jim's playing is the deliberation in it. Uh, he's not free in the way that Bird is free, mm-hmm. in, the, in the way that Schofield is, is, is free, I think. Jim was really burdened by having to think about what he was doing note by note. The phrase that comes to mind is composer's piano. Uh, you know, there's always the, uh, the and the, and that's not a not a complimentary phrase. Is yeah, it? It means somebody who kind of fumbles when he plays and just kind of play, plays with with intense deliberation. Is not really a fluent player, but a, but a, but who needs to communicate the ideas that he's worked out painfully over a period of days in this room all by himself with a pencil on a piece of paper. There's a bit of that in Jim's playing. and Jim was, in fact, an active writer and a very good writer, I think too. I like composer playing. What I hear in Jim that's that's kind of heroic that i that I love and that and that I, and it's an affliction that I'm afraid I have too, is you hear him struggling to play a little faster to get, a few more notes out than he's able to get out. And I think the problem is not in the end really physical. It's it's it has to do with the, the way in which he thinks music. And Jim thinks a bit like a composer. He needs that split second in which to deliberate about whether to play a G natural or a G G sharp. You know, what do I want? Do I want the very consonant sounding G G natural against this G seventh, or do I want the color that a G shell could yep. provide? You know, and of course, all of what I'm describing took several seconds, but it can it can happen when you're playing in a, a nanosecond, in a, in a fraction of a second. But Jim needs that; his playing always has that, and, and part of the urgency in his playing is uh, that I hear is is I hear him straining against against that uh, that impulse against the need to to think for an instant about whether it's going to be a g or a g shot mm-hmm. where scope ability'd have already played and would be on to the next sixty fifth mode with with absolute carefree abandon would
0: have, would have played both at the same time maybe
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, indeed indeed would have displayed a minor second and then yep. fuck it on to the next yeah I, I i think i have learned a great deal and continue to learn a great deal from jim in fact i have his method book open on my music stand right now downstairs but beyond that i think we're just kind of alike and maybe jim, jim would have been a great bass player uh, given the, the the attitude I just described, and and given also that he's just a master of counterpoint, I mean he really knows his counterpoint, and of course that's what a bass player needs more than anything else. And and uh, I, I just read a biography of Paul Chambers, in 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 which there's reference also to Paul's focus on counterpoint as as a, as an area of study. Mm. It certainly was for me. I I had very limited academic experience, uh, but among the few things that were really valuable to me was a course in in, uh, 16th century counterpoint that I got during my freshman year at at university. Luckily, by utter luck, again something that that happened to me. The course was taught by an extraordinary composer named Donald Martino, who became a a, a significant contemporary twelve-tone composer, won won a Pulitzer Prize, and and had a distinguished life as a composer. When I had him as my instructor, he was a young, just out of graduate school, teaching. Teaching courses at the university to 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 get by and to establish himself as a as a real composer. So I was I was taught counterpoint by somebody who saw it as a as a living thing that was applicable to to contemporary practice. Uh, and in fact, Donald Martino had a great love for for jazz music and was a good friend of Bill Evans and, and was sympathetic to, to my impulse to play jazz, knew that I that I was a jazz bass player and, and directed some of his comments in this classroom context clearly to the bass player in the back of the room. I was always grateful to him. At any rate, Jim Jim also was a, a studied composer. went to went to school to be a composer. wrote the st- students' string quartets and all of that stuff, mm. and and retained that that impulse in his playing, the, the impulse to make it deliberate, to to use the the, the virtues of deliberation to make the music as, as close to perfect as possible. But Jim Hall, at his best, you, you isolate a chorus and say, that's perfect. <laughs> it's, it's, every note is inevitable. Uh, the, the the arc of the solo is is, is the, has flawless integrity, just the way a, the, the, the form of an arch has a, has a perfect integ- integrity in the sense that it's not going to fall down, mm-hmm. integrity. In, a, in a, the structural meaning of the of the word, uh, Wayne Wayne Shorter is one of my favorite improvisers, and it's the, the the same deal. You're listening to a composer. You're listening to a composer struggle to be to become as as fluent as the guys who just kind of improvise without regard for what the things that. that Composers obsess about and the, the things that make them composers because composing is uh, an act of obsession.
0: Right. You
1: have to obsess over whether it's a G or a G, G sharp. That's your job as a composer. Yeah. Your job as an improviser is to say, fuck it. So, somewhere between these two extremes, uh, my, my favorite players, uh, Monk, I love the way Monk plays. I mean, uh, the focus, of course, is on his tunes, but he plays great. Uh, Amazing, and, yeah. And essentially, he's paraphrasing the tune most of the time and as, as he improvises, but that's a wonderful way to improvise. I, when I was starting out, I, I, I played quite a lot with Buck Clayton, the, the trumpet player, and I, I came to realize after I'd been playing with him for a couple of weeks that he was not At all, running the changes, Um, and I was also playing a bit with Coleman Hawkins at that time, so I knew what running the changes was, and that's that's what Coleman Hawkins did. Coleman, the tune didn't mean the melody of the tune didn't mean shit to Coleman Hawkins. It was the chord structure, and, and And again, this is not to denigrate what he did. It was just astonishing the way he could manipulate chord motion. Uh, But but here's Buck Clayton at the other end of the spectrum, not doing that at all. It's as if he just never considered the possibility of looking at a page of chord changes without a a melody. In fact, it's as if the chord changes were irrelevant. If If I hadn't known that he was, in fact, one of Basie's best arrangers and was very skilled at, at vertical structures you know at, at voicing of five five note saxophone twoties and all of that mm-hmm. stuff I would have thought he didn't know that stuff but uh, but he did but in this playing he never made reference to it he he, he only seemed to me he only made reference to the to the melody mm-hmm. Every, Everything he did was in effect uh, extrapolating the the melody of, like Monk, and of course Monk knew what the harmonies were. He wrote them, for God's yeah.
0: sake. I wanted that, to talk to you about Monk actually because you played with him.
1: Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Sixty-four in yeah, Monterey. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct.
0: How How was that experience for you, and how did you how did you prepare for it?
1: Well, I didn't at all. I well, I prepared for it in the in the in the long run by having had a long history of transcribing Monk tunes and listening to him endlessly. Um, listening to his band at the Five Spot, his various bands at the Five Spot. I heard the band with Coltrane. I, I heard Monk play with Sonny Rollins and with Johnny Griffin and of course with Charlie Rouse a lot and. Um, at the time I played with Monk, I was on a package tour. If I'm not mistaken, I was on a package tour with him, his band, and I was playing with Art Farmer and Jim Hall at the at the time. It was a George Ween package. It was touring the touring the country. I can't remember at various times: Herbie Mann, Wes Montgomery. Uh, uh, Dion Warwick. There were all kinds of uh, a motley collection that George Ween was kind of trundling around the country from city to city. This circuit kind of doesn't exist anymore, and it's a pity. It's wonderful. Uh, so I had I had come to to know Monk. He he was a bit inscrutable, but I but but we were friends. We said hi. We even. Pass the occasional cryptic sentence with each other, you know, in in the airport or whatever, was fun. I I I considered him a a, a friend, and I and I think he was, uh, I think he liked me as well. I, I was close to Ben Riley, his drummer. Ben and I would sit together on planes on purpose to to hang out, and I was buddies with Charlie Rouse as as well. I'm proud to say. I'm happy to say. Mm-hmm they were very welcoming guys they were slightly slightly or more than slightly older than i was and i felt grateful to them that they were accepting me that they were accepting me as a as a white boy as well i, I was pleased that i that, that that i was allowed into their into their world to the extent i was at any rate we were in monterey and and Monk's baseball couldn't make the plane, so they were hung for a guy, and I think it was Ben Riley who suggested me to Monk, and Monk agreed, so I did I did the gig. And I was kind of wondering what preparation might be involved, too, and, and of course there was nothing. Monk was the <laughs> older Paul Blay on me, kind of. You know, I, would, I made myself available to him all day long in the hopes that he would say, do you know Epistrophe, Do you know minor? You know there was none of that kind of stuff at all. And in the end, finally, we're at the bottom of the stairs—these wooden stairs leading up to the to the, to the stage—and there's a guy on stage saying, "And now, ladies and gentlemen, Mon the Thelonious Monk Quartet. At that at that moment, Monk turn, turns to me at the bottom of the stairs and says. You know the tunes, right? <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, I, luckily, I was able to say, "Yeah, I do, because I really did. I knew tunes of his that he hadn't played in years and had probably forgotten I'd been playing with Steve Lacey in Roswell Road, and I've been doing all I'd been living monk's music and knew it knew it well. so I very emphatically and proudly said, "Yeah." And at that moment, we just went up the stairs and and played the set, and that it ended up being a recording is just the 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 best joke of all. I mean, the whole thing is just hilarious in my in my view and and wonderful. I I loved it.
0: How did mm. it feel?
1: Felt good. Felt really good up there. I had been playing with Ben in some other contexts, jam sessions and. And uh, I think maybe even a, a gig or two we played with to, together with other guys. And I knew Charlie's playing inside out, and, and knew him well. And in fact, Carla, my best friend Carla, knew Charlie from the early 50s, when or mid 50s, when she worked as a coat check girl at, at Birdland. She remembered Charlie in particular because he had the best coat of all the jazz musicians in the mid-1950s. It was fur, I believe. Anyhow, I was comfortable in 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 that context. I knew the music cold, and I I knew Ben's playing, and I knew that Ben and I played well together and that he enjoyed it, and so on. So I was kind of free of many of the anxieties that might have arisen. I felt like I was doing something I was faded to do, in effect. I, I was as, as ready as I could reasonably be, and it worked great. I, I, I loved the, the experience, and I'm thrilled that it became a re- recording. It's, yeah. Monk was wonderful. Monk was full of, of uh, humor. He was a hilarious guy. I, I think he, he, he was almost always making jokes that people weren't getting. Uh, He he was always taken so seriously, and and he was, in fact, a a prankster. Mm. He was, of course, a very serious prankster. Those tunes are as serious as you can get, but he meant them as jokes. Even the tunes, he meant for the improvisers to to get all tied up.
0: I just learned epistrophe. Yeah. I just learned that. And... How the A section is mirrored reminds me a little bit of a joke. Like seriously, we're staying here, and yeah. then you get back to the first chord, and then oh yeah, of course it makes sense. <laughs> but yeah,
1: no, there there's a lot of that um, that kind of stuff that using using simple material in in, in ways that are quite sophisticated, you know. Taking an idea and using its retrograde, using its inversion, using its retrograde inversion, all of that stuff. Monk was doing all of that stuff with very simple vernacular phrases. You know, so on the on the one hand, you're playing a vocabulary you you love, and a, and a vocabulary that's very comfortable, but you're forced to encounter it in ways you never have before, it's a, it's a bit cubist, his composing as, as well, the, you know the nose is on the wrong side of the face sometimes yeah, but yeah, yeah. you understand the tune it's it's right, the nose has to be there, given where the eyes are mm-hmm. he's a wonder, on the other hand I think he didn't have the kind of influence on me that, that Jim all that Jim, mm-hmm. Jim of course I played with Jim night after night, and that that has its effect. But Jim was critical to me. When I encountered the electric bass and, and found that I had nothing to do but to continue to play the electric bass, much to my regret and all of that, but I just had to do it, Jim was the model, the available model that I turned to. When I when I thought about finding a some kind of source to re- refer to, uh, I bought a bunch of Motown records and a bunch of Stax Vault records and listened to the, the best electric bass players of the, of the day. And I, I' admired them greatly and still do. But I did there wasn't much that I could use in what they were doing. And, and so I, I find myself falling back on jazz guitar playing traditions. That's where I was able to find you start with the idea that well, I want to sound like that. And then you proceed to the idea to, to the realization that in order to sound like that, I'm going to have to do things that are related to the way they do it. So, I'm, I, if I want to sound like Jim Hall, I have to I have to pick like Jim Hall.
0: Did you use the pick from from the get go?
1: Not initially, but very very soon after. I, I, no, I began with fingers, and a, a few months after, I'd. I, began playing the electric bass. Initially, Larry Coryell was the guitarist with Gary Burton, and I was kind of asking him questions and, and uh, getting some good advice from him. And then he left, and Jerry Hahn became the guitar player. And Jerry was a prankster, and he, he knew that that... Usually after the gig, I'd go back to the hotel, and one of the glories of playing an electric instrument is it's nice and quiet without an amp, so you can play in your hotel room without yeah. you know, somebody banging on your wall. And Jerry knew that I, after the gig, I would come back and sort of desperately practice to try and get it better for tomorrow. So he took to walking the corridors and listening and finding finding me, finding my room. He'd knock on the door and... and uh, and and come in and say here, give me that thing, and he'd take my bass and whip a pick out of his pocket and play something blazingly fast and glorious, and you know, and then just kind of with a grin on his face, hand me the instrument back. But I he he made me realize that the the pick was a possibility I should consider. I was also at the time again circumstances rather than something I willed myself. I was playing a an instrument, a Gibson E 2 semi hollow body electric bass that was very muddy sounding, very dark round. I kind of liked that, but it was not a, a clear sounding instrument and I was playing it through an Ampeg B3, the classic Ampeg amp. Uh, which is also a very dark-sounding instrument. So I was having trouble getting clarity in what I was playing with that setup, and the the pick gave me that. Had I been playing a a Fender Precision through a Fender Basement amp, I probably never would have picked up a pick. But I'm glad I did. There's a kind of paradox, I think, that, that with this stiff, hard object, you can actually get a more legato sound, or I can get a more legato sound than I can with the soft flesh of my fingers. And they that, said, that's a joke. You know, it's a paradox. But I found it to be true. And and again, Jim Hall is my model for somehow coaxing that from the, the string of a singing sound. He gets a beautiful legato mm. I've learned a lot from Steve Kuhn, the the pianist, with whom I first played in 1960, and he's been, again, referring to the early thing we talked about, he's sort of an ongoing relationship. Yeah, there he is. That's my buddy Steve. (laughs) Uh, he's been a great influence as well in terms of sound production. And he studied from the time he was a seven- or eight-year-old boy with a remarkable woman named Margaret Shaloff, who was the mother of Serge Shaloff, the baritone
0: player. She's, a, think, she's a name that comes up often, yeah. right? A lot of well, guys well, studied with her. A chick also, well, right? Chick, Herbie
1: Hancock, Red Garland... Right. Uh, a lot of guys went to her for some time, and in fact, I did too. I, I took several lessons with her. She was intrigued to have a bass player as a student, and uh, and I learned a good deal from her. But I especially learned a lot about her teaching from, from Kim, who, who studied with her for, I don't know, 12 or 14 years as a young boy. So she really had a, an appreciable effect on, on him. And she came from the so-called Russian school yeah. of, of, of piano playing and, and teaching. And, and it really, um, among other things, of course, it really did involve th- thinking very clearly not about striking the, the key, but, but pulling the sound from the key, you know, depressing the key and then pulling the sound from the instrument as the hammer, hit the string... I was able somehow to understand more of that process as it related to picking the string, which is what I do. Um,
0: How did you translate those those lessons from her?
1: I believe I have a slight advantage over you piano players. You piano players are stuck with a mechanism where the, 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 the hammer strikes the string, and that's, that's what it does. Whereas the pick, in very slow motion you know makes its way to the string grabs it pulls it and then releases it one way of looking at all of the the practicing i've done over over these years is i've I've just kind of burrowed deeper and deeper into that event i've slowed it down slower and slower and slower to the point where i'm acutely conscious of the degree to which I pull the string, the moment at which I, the, the pick releases the string and it begins its vibration. Initially, I think when you start learning an instrument and and when you're a young student, you're really concerned with stuff like velocity. You're, you're looking forward to the day when you can play list, you know, and just play something really fast and something that, that uses the, the lowest register of the piano and the highest register of the piano, and it's intensely physical and you're galloping along. And uh, and I'm, that's when I began learning music, that's what I was aspiring to. It. But what, what it's come down to to me, especially as a bass player, and I think it does have a lot to do with the fact that I am a bass player and not a saxophone player, uh, it's come down more and more to, to 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 the opposite of of that, it's come down to to focusing with with ever greater microscopic attention at the at the, the details of the of the very basic and simple aspects of of my playing, and I think that's how you get end up with the illusion that you're sort of effortlessly making a beautiful sound, as if you were just sort of born to make a beautiful sound, and that's the way you sing. In, in point of fact I think in at least in my case that's the product of, of the work that I've done that what I'm displaying when I play a gig is the hours I've spent looking ever more closely at the the, the very small details of what I do wow. And Jim Jim Hall uh, has a lot to I have a lot to thank him for. Once I learned some of those lessons from Jim, I was able to apply what I'd learned to to my study of other guys, of Lester Young, Dick Dickinson, uh, and for for that matter of other bass players. And I I have a sort of obscure list of the the guys I really admire and feel a strong kinship to.
0: Do you want to run a couple of other names?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, for instance, I, I, although as a very young boy, I was I encountered Ray Brown, and I was really moved by what he did. He receded rather quickly among among the bass players who were important to me, and, and that, that's a, that's unusual, I think. Even even today's guys like Thomas Morgan. Or Christian McBride, or I love Ray Brown. Ray Brown has remained a central figure in the bass, but not for me. Yeah. And, and to refer to a song title, I I love Percy Heath. If if there's a, a, a central figure for me, it's it's Percy Heath, mm. and it comes down to his his his, uh, his feel, yeah. and his sound, yeah. his sound and his attack. He's also he- scrupulous bass player. He plays in tune, for instance. It was um, great with
0: Monk also.
1: Wonderful with Monk on some of the, some of those early, very early Blue Note yeah. recordings. Yeah. And that's that's Percy as a young man too. And you can you can hear him developing but you can hear that he's already what he became that the seeds of what he became are there. Stemming from Percy as as I feel I I do also came Doug Watkins who was sort of Paul Chambers other Paul Chambers' brother from Detroit they were almost almost the same age went to the same high school etc cetera, etc cetera, knew and loved each other but I love Doug more than Paul much as I love Paul I, I, I feel a very special kinship with Doug Watkins and 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 I feel that he's very close to Percy in in, in many ways and is. Approach to the instrument. I've shared this this thinking with with Peter Washington, among the younger bass players, and he's of very much the same school. He loves Doug and loves Percy as as well, and approaches generating sound on the instrument very much as they do. And uh, Peter is one of my favorite of of the, the younger players, for the for that reason. I, I mean, I can't help but notice I'm, that I'm talking about acoustic players. I'm not talking about electric players. I, I, I have learned from electric players. I've learned from Anthony Jackson. I think he's a remarkable uh, technician and, and, uh, and a remarkable presence within the recording. He, he, he's a real bass player. He reassures everybody else in the recording studio or on the bandstand. That they don't need to worry at all. That he's got it, yeah. and that's yeah. terribly important. That's central to to being a bass player. I love the way Pino Palladino touches the bass, the electric bass. You know, I'm I'm not without regard for the community of electric bass players. There are a lot of lot of really good ones, but I keep returning to the to the acoustic bass. Wilbur Ware was tremendously important yeah. to me. Wil- Wilbur was such a, such a on on one level a, a kind of primitive player. He he thumped and he grabbed the bass with his left hand. He didn't look at all like a a, a symphony player, but nevertheless those those uh, Village Vanguard recordings with Sonny Rollins and uh, a, a very rudimentary textbook in, in in playing counterpoint on the on the bass. He had a, a Remarkable contrapuntal vocabulary. I thought I thought he was an extraordinary player, and he was a lovely guy. I came to do luckily a sense that there was a tradition to be passed on orally before Charles Colin books and before Chuck Share and before the real book and all of and before Berkeley. Really, there, there was the idea that young a young bass player could ask his elder questions, and so I asked. Wilbur endless questions and he answered them all with great generosity like when when you play with Elvin how do you how, how can you how can you ride that horse Elvin is such a charging beast uh, Wilbur how do you do it how do you how do you you know he gave me a 20-minute answer with all kinds of anecdotes and everything. He was a wonderful storyteller. But it came down to you just got to hold the reins tight, you know, and that's your job. And Elvin needs that. Elvin needs somebody to hold the reins tight. And that was, for me, really valuable advice. You know, uh, He could have used all kinds of other metaphors, but that's the one he chose to use. Um, I found Percy Heath similarly generous.
0: Do you have any other memories to share from from asking those guys questions?
1: Oh, they, they to give you a sort of glib response, the memories are in my playing. That's what my what my playing has become. is so is so much a reflection of those guys. I mean, I as I said, I didn't I didn't study playing the the instrument. I studied theory in in school, and but then left school after. A, year and a half, and and, uh, everything else has been kind of self-taught. I would buttonhole these guys, and I'm I'm grateful. To this day, I'm sort of abjectly grateful that they were so generous to me. I I remember going, when I first worked in L.A., I worked Shelley's manhole. I went to to Red Mitchell's house, and and I ran into him at the club, and, and he invited me to his house. And I ended up sitting on his bed well he and his wife were both dressed in their in their sleepwear and were in the bed. and I was I just wasn't leaving. and uh, I just I just didn't see that that it was well past time for me to go. I had one more question that I just had to, and all of a sudden I kind of saw myself sitting at the end of their bed as they very patiently and tolerantly, you know, read just asked answered the next question and then the the one after that. And and then in fact, just kind of cap it off. I finally took the hint and left and leapt into my rental car. And drove right off his driveway and into his well manicured flower bed, and got stuck. And he had to get up and put his clothes back on and wow. get out of the, get me out of this flower bed. You know, and he did this all with just a benign smile on his face. He thought it was the funniest thing that had ever happened to him. So right? you
0: were invited again after that.
1: Yeah, I, I managed to, to actually return to their house, and they were equally gra- gracious. The next, the next time, around. I had a long history with Red Mitchell as a as a child. I grew up in the town uh, where his parents lived, and in fact, my parents and Red Mitchell's parents were friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, Red was my babysitter when I was two years old, and he was a young, you know, teenager, I guess. My my parents actually paid him to take care of me while they went to the to the movies, and I can kind of vaguely remember having sock fights with Red Mitchell. We'd we'd ball up the, the socks and yeah. and uh, and make little baseballs out of them, and then hide behind couches and rise up and throw them at each other. And I, 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 that kind of relationship with, with Red throughout his life, I and mean, and he appeared all at, at at moments when I needed him, he always seemed to seemed to appear. I, I think very often, and and maybe it's an illusion you create for yourself, but as 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 you look back, you see threads kind of accumulating their own logic as they as they go. And Red Red's presence in my life is is one of those pre- threads, you know that. That had to do with with leading me to to be what I am, a base player. The elders were very generous with me, and um, I think, in a way, that 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 system of, of 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 transmitting information from one generation to the next has has really changed a lot, I and mean, we're we're doing it now. Yeah, um, absolutely. And the the whole publishing industry and and the school industry, I've I've seen it grow from from almost nothing to to what it is today. I had a small part in the process of of the the real book coming to life, so I'm I'm implicit and I'm I'm guilty of of, of furthering uh, this Process. I taught in Berkeley for a couple of years, a couple of long years, mm-hmm. uh, and and of course it was inevitable too. It's not altogether a bad thing, but it's kind of replaced the 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 way in which I learned the the, the one-on-one, the coming up to Paul Chambers between sets and saying, Paul, on on if I were a a ballad, the, the way you and Philly played on that tune, it was a, a mystery to me that you. Seemed to be rushing, but the tempo didn't get faster. Yeah. Uh, how'd you do that? You know, and he didn't push me aside. He he spent his break telling, answering that question. Today, if you got to to learn from Paul Chambers, it was probably he was doing a clinic in the afternoon because he was yeah. he to make to make some money yeah. before the you know. Uh, and of course, that's good too. It's it's uh, r- remarkable how well trained musicians coming out of the, the schools are. Uh, I I envy them their training and their and their technique. But 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 of course, it's different. Um, what what is communicated on the page and on the video and in the classroom is is not quite the same, at least in terms of emphasis, as, as what's communicated when you walk up to a guy between sets and ask him a question. Yeah. What's
0: the last guy you asked a question like that
1: between sets? Oh, Schofield. Yeah. You, you know, last week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, along the lines of, what the hell was that you played? Yeah. Um, sometimes I get a specific answer and sometimes I just get a, a, a a, a light-hearted response and sometimes the lighthearted response is is more instructive than the right. than the specific answer too. But I've I i i found that the the guys good players, good experienced players often talk in, in very concrete terms about what they're doing. And and young, young players are often embarrassed to to, to talk in quite those terms you know like a young player would would be exposing a degree of ignorance if he if he went up to the the leader at a rehearsal and said well i'm not g7 what are you playing are you playing altered or is it symmetrical diminished with the, the, the is the the national 13 or is it or is it a flat 13 you just don't want to ask that when you're a kid because you're hip and you're supposed to know and yeah. you just know. Um the really experienced guys are asking each other questions of that sort all the time. Like I I can't quite hear it. Is is that a flat thirteen or or not? And they and that they they're secure in the in, in what it is they know and, and unafraid to ask those kind of questions and to, and to engage in that kind of conversation and that that goes on a lot in in the rehearsing i'm still doing at this at this time with the the guys i play with who, who are who are experienced and 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 competent you know very very specific questions about what what the harmonies mean or or what's the best register to play this in or you know all of the very obvious questions
0: can you describe this process, how how it evolved between you and and Bill Stewart, maybe, of asking yeah, I, asking him because I, I I can you have such a great hookup, but you come we, from from of, of course different generations, but also he he brings stuff to the table that that Pete LaRocca didn't play, you know, or yeah,
1: for sure, and yeah. I mean I I've I've had to learn that. Uh, Bill, Bill Stewart has, has taught me a lot. He's he is, I must say, a, uh, among the drummers of this generation, as smart and 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 determined to advance the vocabulary of the drums as as any any player. And I think he, he's remarkable among drummers in any generation. He does a lot of stuff that I'm. Astonished by. I guess that's that's the word. And I have to watch myself, of course, on the bandstand because when you get astonished by something a guy plays, and you tend to forget everything, including what you were playing at the time. And in particular, when I listen to to, to him play fours and eights when we're doing trades with yeah. him, have to be really careful not to be too astonished by by what he's doing, to not get too analytical about what he's doing because I'll forget to come in and it just no longer matters to me where the downbeat is that I'm supposed to arrive at with him. I have to be careful with him he's able to subdivide the beat in ways that no other drummer I've played with is and again I think it's the product of of a lot of research and practice on, on his part I've played a couple of tours with a a bunch of Latin percussionists. It was tremendously instructive to me to play with these guys. And among them was was a guy named Giovanni Hidalgo, Mm who's become legendary as as a, a very advanced, as kind of the Tony Williams of Congress. And he and I became buddies, and as was the case with Ben Riley, I would kind of search out sitting next to him at the plane, so in the plane, so I could kind of figure stuff out, ask him questions. And he spoke very, very little English, so there was a lot of very halting attempts to explain things. But mostly I was just kind of watching him in action. And I sometimes we'd fall, so often we'd fall silent and during the plane rides, and and often also I would see him begin to to, to do do exercises and I saw that what he was doing was with his left hand establishing a, a fixed pulse just thumping on his on his leg just a kind of slow two beat pulse and then on with his right hand he began, began doing a series of subdivisions and, and getting he he'd, he'd, he'd play two beats in his right hand against the the, the one, the steady one beat flow in his left hand, and then he played three beats against the steady flow, and yep. four, and five, and six, and seven, and eight, yep. nine, ten, seven, all of this and into into 17 against this wow. steady one, steady pulse in his left hand. And I really found that breathtaking, and, and to this day, I can't do it. Uh, Dan Weiss can do it. Bill Stewart can do it. you got to watch out if, you, if you're if you listening to him play a four-bar fill and you need to come in on the downbeat at the end of this four-bar fill. You better be very confident about where the, the fixed pulse is because he may well be playing seven beats against the one beat or nine or 11 beats against the, the one. And if you Make the mistake of thinking you're listening to 16th notes or 32nd notes or 64th notes, you can get hopelessly lost. You can miss the, the the train when it comes around. The train metaphor is something I learned that you were you were fishing for stories when I was talking to Alvin once between sets and and. Uh, I don't remember if I asked this or if somebody else asked it It said, "Elvin, how come you play so long?" It's a simple question, and in those days, the the length of Coltrane solos, the length of Elvin solos, was 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 really shocking. I didn't play for that long, and and Elvin's ask, answer was wonderful, wonderfully modest, I thought, and, and uh, unassuming. He said, well, it's hard for me to get out of the soul. You know, the, the the top of the form comes around every 32 bars or every 12 bars, whatever it is. And it's like you're on a merry-go-round and you're trying to grab the, the the ring. You know, I I grab for it and I miss it. So I have to take another chorus. And then after that chorus is over, I grab again and I miss it again. And I just ah, okay. keep until... And in effect, what he was saying, I have to keep going until it's till there's an ending. Uh, you can't stop it in the middle of, of of its evolution. You have to wait till it's a, wait till it's over. And again, it's this thing that I that I guess I've been stressing for the last while. There's a kind of passivity to playing music. that's that's, that's it's it's important to acknowledge that the music is happening to you. Your life is happening to you. The the sense of control is a bit of an illusion. It, it, and it, and it's good to know that. And I think Elvin was saying, in effect, his soul was happening to him. And he, he, he couldn't will it to end. It had to end. Mm. And if it took ten minutes, it took ten minutes. And he was sorry to intrude on you for that time but it was kind of out of his hands. You know, I thought that was a wonderful lesson for a kid of my age to learn. That's sweet. I don't even know what question that was in response to, but there's the nice Elvin story. Elvin was a lovely man. He was a huge, a voracious reader. And again, you know, the stereotype of the drummer, and and, and of Elvin in particular is of this kind of chain, this beast, you know, let loose on the dance, on the dance stand. And of course he was that, but but he was also a tremendously inquisitive and cultured person. And one of those guys whose suitcase on the road was was more books than clothes. You know. Wow. In in the day pre Kindle days mm-hmm. when. You we know, had to calculate very carefully how many books can I fit into my suitcase and still have my suit for the gig. You know? in
0: which band did you guys play together?
1: We didn't. I, I played with him on a, on, a, on a few occasions, just one-offs, but I never played in his band, and then he never played in mine. I played with him infrequently. But,
0: Are there any recordings of you guys together?
1: No. No? none. None. Okay, it's because gone. I
0: was curious now to hear that you guys knew each other, I was wondering if I could, if I could hear you guys together. Actually, there's another question I have because I I keep reading that you played with Herbie Hancock,
1: but yes. I haven't
0: found a recording of it.
1: No, there are none of that either. Uh, but I did. We were kind of in the same soup in in New York City in the early nineteen. 19- 60s. Um, I remember one night the two of us subbed on the Thad Jones Mel Lewis band so it was Herbie Mel and I were the, wow. with the rhythm section it was an interesting night we, it was quite good and uh, in in particular I remember a week that we did at the Village Vanguard, uh, Charles Lloyd was the band leader, it was Charles's band and it was Herbie and Pete LaRocca and, me, and wow. that was a wonderful Wonderful week! I enjoyed that very much. And there was, at that time in New York, a very fluent jam session scene going on. Uh, uh, It was a good time to to be in New York. And I, I think most of my contact with Herbie was was in in those those places. the 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 loft spaces, the industrial spaces, were where there was a set of drums and a uh, and a piano. Uh, and that's all that had to happen. The, the musicians came as 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 inevitably to those rooms as as you know weeds come to a garden. just mm-hmm. all you was get the drums and the piano and, and sit there. And pretty pretty soon some beboppers would show up. It was a nice, nice time, a nice fluent uh, Do you miss that? Uh, no, not really. I'm content with with my isolation, and that's what I've kind of moved to. I'm I'm living out here in the in the country with with Carla Bley. She's all the company I need, in musical and otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and I no, I think inevitably I've kind of come to this this point where I'm. Where I don't, I don't want to. Uh, tonight, I'm not gonna want to go out and find some other guys to play with. Yeah. Uh, but, but I will go down to the basement for as, as many hours as I can to to work on the stuff that I know I need to to work on. I know what I need to do. I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm I'm not connected to the community of players in in the way I was when I was 20. But I think that's inevitable, and it's as it. Should
0: be. of course you've had that experience you don't need, I, I was just too curious if you sometimes think back about that time as you told me now with the jam sessions and the lofts you know sure
1: sure yeah. I, think, I think back on it uh, um, but more m- more as an act of nostalgia I say I'd say than 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 that I'm that I'm going back to learn something that I that I missed I, I, I'm just very Happy about that time. It was a a glorious time, despite the fact that it was difficult in 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 certain obvious ways. Nobody had any money, and uh, you know I was lugging my big base on the subway everywhere to go play with people, and it's yeah. just. Uh, but those things recede over the years, and we
0: just remember the, the glorious bits. Yeah, of course. I have a a couple of other questions um, in terms of composing, also what your process is there, and also maybe we can link that a little bit to your partner, uh, to Carla. Yeah, yeah. Because what I'm imagining is seeing your house now, and you, I see a I see a computer there, I see a copy machine. I, it's a workplace. But yes. to imagine that composers or musicians. Human beings like you and Carla in the same house working on <laughs> stuff. It's yeah. just, uh, it's just a fa- fantastic uh, thought for me, you know, to imagine you guys working on a bar or something and then going to the other room. And that's my, that's my imagination or maybe my question also showing that bar to your partner. Like, what do you think? Does that happen? And, and, and if that happens, what have you learned from her?
1: The, I, that doesn't quite happen at, at, the, at the level of writing a bar and showing it showing it to Carla or vice, vice versa. It's not quite that specific, but, but there's a constant flow between us, a constant music flow between us. I, I think that the, the, the key to the success of our long-term relationship is first separate bathrooms very important (laughs) (laughs) and secondly separate workspaces and luckily we live in a house that's big enough that she's up on the top floor with a piano and a desk and i'm in the basement with a an area for playing the bass and the piano and the desk and, we're, and we're, we're each able to work without intruding on the other, and that's terribly important. If we were in a smaller house and uh, and if we were living closer to each other, as we have been on occasion, we'd have to use electric keyboards with headphones and all of that to not disturb each other. And uh, and in fact, we do that each year for a certain amount of time, and that's okay. But it's, it's great to be able to... to to be entirely separate and we spend most of each day working entirely separately, but, but we come together and we discuss what we're doing freely. And I, and in fact, I hear her composing, I hear the process of her making a new piece distinctly because I, when I'm on the, the, the main floor, I can hear her above me working an idea, uh, playing a pattern endlessly and changing one note here and then trying that for 10 minutes and then changing another note there and the, the usual composer work I, I she's been a, a, a considerable influence on me since since I first encountered her in the in in the early 1960s she's the the first composer of in I saw in her natural habitat because I was hanging out with Paul Blay and she was in the next room writing music. I'd never seen a composer before up, up close like that actually working. So she's been a kind of per- pervasive influence throughout the years. And as a player, I've been playing her music all this time too. So that's, uh, that's another way in which we we're linked. Um, uh, She's kind of incorporated me into the process of of writing music. At some point, point kind of midway through writing a piece, I would say, she writes out a lead sheet and a bass part, and we go down to the basement and, and play it, and she often makes substantial changes after we've played the piece together based on how it feels, how it how it feels in the real world, how how I, as the bass player, respond to it, and, and how she, as the, the piano player, responds to the presence of the bass playing this thing that she's written. Uh, and she'll return up two floors to work on it for another few days, and then she'll come back down, we'll play it again, and other changes will, will be made. Um, so in that way, I'm proud and happy to be to, to be within the process but she doesn't come down with a bar of music and 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 show it to me and we never work together at, at a piece and uh, I think mostly we're since each each of us write we're, we're kind of sympathetic and understanding about the needs of a composer the need to to, to be alone for long periods of time and to be undisturbed, and we kind of fight for each other's isolation and privacy. And, and then in, in a very general way, when we meet to cook dinner at the end of the day, she will, you know, sometimes get quite specific. I'm working on the A section, and the, it seems to want to be nine bars, but it would be better for the player if it were eight bars. But this idea just this melody continues and she'll sing the melody and you see how it goes for the extra bar. And do you think the player would be uh, put off by this extra bar when he's taking a solo or, or, or will it be uh, to his advantage to have, to have a slightly uh, asymmetric form? Uh, you know, we're dealing together with, with questions that arise in. In the process of writing a tune, I'll do this, the same with her. Uh, so so at some point, we, we, we're connecting with each other daily about the about the music we're working on. And, and very often, we're working on the same music because we spend a lot of time with music that she's written for the trio that she has with me and Andy Shepard, the saxophone player. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the basement just playing that repertoire, and it evolves as as she hears it with with the bass added. And as I complain about the awkwardness of certain events and all of that, it's uh, it's an ongoing, very much a live process. It's wonderful to live, I think, with another musician, and especially another musician you're in direct contact with with whom you play on a on a regular on a regular basis. It's uh, uh, I could see that the opposite might be might be good, and in, and in fact, my first wife was not a musician at all, and 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 it seemed a good thing to be able to retreat from music to to a world in in, in which if I started talking about G 7 she would you know blank out. Uh, it was kind of kind of good to have that, and I no longer have that. If I start talking about a G7, I get a response. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a mixed blessing. I mean, for years, too, this this house had a recording studio in the basement, and a lot of the, the, the albums that each of us made and, uh, were, were made directly in the basement. And then there was no line at all between between music and and not music. You'd get up in the morning, make your coffee, and go down to the studio and start working on the mix of what you'd recorded the day before, and then you'd practice the tunes for the gig that was coming up in a month, and there was just a, a constant irreversible flow of, of, of music in the house. And I'm kind of glad that now that... There's some breath we have both learned. I think that there needs to be some, some, some breath between between musical statements.
0: You know? mm. Right. What do you think you, you guys learn from each other compositionally?
1: Mm. Well, I'd, if we had days to talk, we could get very specific about <laughs> about. You know, harmony and and the shape of melodies and rhythms and all of that stuff. But the, the broad answer and and of course, as a broad answer, it has its limitations and even its inaccuracies. I I think I've learned composing from Carla and Carla's learned playing from me, hmm. and we've profited from that. I mean, I think her. Writing has profited from my experience as a guy on the bandstand every night. As as the guy who lugs his face to the gig, plays all night, and then comes back home. I've I've learned things about what players need and what players like. And that information has, I think, been useful to Carla. And I think that's why she writes out bass parts and we go down to the basement and play it. She kind of acknowledges that, that that I know that, and I've been eavesdropping on her. I've been watching her be a composer for years and years, and that's been tremendously informative. I've, I've learned I've learned how to be a composer just from watching her. I mean, especially in in jazz music, it's tremendously difficult and courageous to to be a composer to say i'm a composer uh, because nobody really cares all that much the <laughs> focus is so much on improvising the idea is to kind of get through the tune so you can take it solo and here's this woman in the 1950s insisting she's a jazz composer that, that's remarkable she's really made a a, a statement and i've watched her I've watched her do that. Um, she's just at, 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 on a very basic level. She gets up in the morning, gets her coffee, and goes to the desk and writes music every day, unless we're out on tour, unless uh, unless there's an emergency somewhere, mm-hmm. unless there's fire. Uh, <laughs> she's she's at the desk and her, and her day every day is structured to accommodate several lengthy periods of, of sitting at the desk or at the piano to write music on that very basic level i've learned to apply that kind of discipline to my life if i if I want to write, write some music i have to i have to punch in it's like a factory job you know it's not Neither of us believe that you walk in the woods and, and magically you're given a, a, the second movement of the concerto and you rush back to your desk and write it down because the birds sang it to you and the wind whispered it to you and all of that. We don't work that way. We punch in. We go to our desk and it's it's uh, eight 8.13 in the morning and we punch in and we don't punch out until 10 o'clock. And, and if we if we just have to sit there and wait for an idea then that's the those are the rules you sit there and wait for an idea if we're involved in if we've already got the idea and we're involved in expanding it and trying to understand its implications then that's what we do But you're always at some point in the in the process i've, I've learned that from her to, to to treat, treat composing just as I treat bass playing as a, a, a work. It's, uh, it's the work you do, it's your job, it's your uh, vocation. You, mm-hmm. Vocation in the sense that you've been called to, to do it, uh, you gotta do it. Uh, and it's not altogether fun. I, I, in particular, I consider composing a sort of onerous task a very difficult and, and frustrating job and I, I do it reluctantly I haven't done it much lately I've been really focused on playing but, I, but, but I, I've been focused on the, the work of learning to play so that's, that's onerous and difficult and as well but it's, uh, it's what I do it's what I it's, it's was bred to do it's wonderful to intersect with Carla. She's her, what she's born to do is slightly, and, and kind of exists at an oblique angle to what I was born to do. They're wonderfully complementary, the path and my, and my path, and so we we intersect many times in the in the in the course of the day, and and I I think to our to our mutual advantage.
0: You know. Yeah. It shows in the music. It shows when, when I see you guys play together. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, I think it does. I, th- I think it does. Just uh, the body language, that kind of, kind of thing. We're, we're, uh...
0: I'm also it's talking it? about the result.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You can hear it, I think, in the result. But, but, but the line between playing together and living together. Has kind of dissolved over over time, and uh, and I think that that that's part of what shows in the in the result when we play together. But that also happens if you keep a band together for a number of years. If you keep a trio together, uh, you begin to intersect with the bass player and the drummer in in, in ways that are not just notes in the air. Also, you know the bass player is, is going to respond in a certain way when you play a certain phrase, yeah. because that's yeah. the way he is. He's that kind of guy. You can piss him off by playing something, or you can make him very comfortable and happy by playing something else. You know, and this this kind of interaction deepens and deepens as the band stays together. I, I have this also with with Schofield. I have the, I have this with the with the people I've played with for. For years and years and 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 in fact i often say that if, on the on the rare occasion when i'm kind of coerced into 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 teaching i i urge the the 20 year old people that i'm talking to 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 really pay attention to the to the associations that they're making to the guys they're playing with it, you kind of assume when you're 20 that you're you're passing through. You're passing through a school, or you're passing through your first years in the a, in, a, in in the big city, looking for gigs and all of that. And uh, in in point of fact, what's likely happening is you're making associations that will endure. <laughs> <for probably>. 50, <laughs> yeah, fifty or sixty years, you'll still be playing with the same damn guy for better or worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you should kind of take the the, the your association seriously and and and. And take the, the act of selecting with whom you associate musically very seriously, even at that time, even when you're 20 years old. Because it is likely to, to, if if you're lucky, 50 years down the road, you'll still be playing with this same guy. You know, he'll just have gray hair and and slightly different, uh, you know, a mustache. Same. <laughs> yeah right slightly different shape in, indeed but the s- same guy yeah. and uh, for 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 better and for worse you know it's uh but I i think it's wonderful the, the the associations i've made that have endured for for years and years and years that they've deepened the way in which you play together is uh you finish each other's sentences you, you uh, you anticipate what what each what what the other guy is going to say. You you literally anticipate what the other guy is going to say, and if you want, you can play in unison with them. Yeah. Uh, uh, that happens an uncanny number of times with people you played with for, for many years, and that that again reinforces what I said early that, uh, earlier that earlier that the music is something that happens to you. As much as it is something that you make, and what happens is a, a, a phrase in the air comes into you and the bass player at the same time, and you both play it and say, "Oh, oh my God, we just both played the same the same phrase. How did that happen? Uh, it, exactly, it, it happened. It, you didn't make it. It, it happened."
0: It's hard to re- I mean, it's impossible to recreate moments like that. They just, they just come along.
1: Yeah, it will never happen again. Yeah. Endless, endless phrases yet to happen. You <laughs> know.
0: Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, this has been fun. Oh, for me too.